New York, this is Democracy Now! In another unprecedented day in U.S. history, President Trump has pleaded not guilty to federal charges that he tried to overturn the 2020 election. We'll speak to Emory Professor Carol Anderson in Georgia. The charge in the indictment of conspiracy to deny rights, which is the right to vote, was absolutely essential because bedrock foundational to the big lie was the erasure of votes from of black people's votes in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, in Detroit, in Milwaukee, and the erasure of votes from Hispanics and indigenous people in Maricopa County. It was treating American citizens as if they were illegitimate. Then we look at Niger, a week after a military coup ousted the country's president. Niger's new military leaders have just cut off military ties with France, its former colonial ruler. In view of France's casual attitude and reaction to the internal situation prevailing in our country, the National Council for Safeguarding the Homeland has decided to denounce France's security and defense cooperation agreements. One of the coup leaders in Niger had received U.S. military training and had met with a top U.S. officer at a U.S. drone base in Niger just last month. African officers trained by the U.S. military have now taken part in 11 coups in West Africa since 2008. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty to four felony charges over his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Trump entered the plea Thursday in the same federal district court in Washington, D.C., where more than a thousand of his supporters have faced criminal charges over the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. Prosecutors led by special counsel Jack Smith requested a speedy trial, while Trump's legal team asked the magistrate judge for more time to review documents and evidence in the case. It's part of Trump's legal strategy to delay the criminal cases against him until after the 2024 election, which he hopes he will win. Trump's first pretrial hearing is set for August 28th. In Michigan, prosecutors have charged a third ally of President Trump over an alleged plot to access and tamper with voting machines in a bid to help overturn Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. Attorney Stephanie Lambert pleaded not guilty Thursday to four criminal charges, including undue possession of a voting machine and conspiracy. In Sudan, the United Nations warns violence between the army and the rival paramilitary rapid support forces has displaced nearly four million people since fighting broke out in April. Nearly one million of those displaced have left Sudan to seek refuge in other countries. Of those who remain, more than six million, or around 13 percent of Sudan's population, are listed as one step away from famine. Doctors report 70 percent of Sudan's hospitals are not functioning. And on Thursday, Amnesty International warned extensive war crimes are being committed by all of Sudan's warring parties, with civilians killed in both deliberate and indiscriminate attacks and women and girls subjected to sexual violence. This is Amnesty International's regional director for East Africa, Sarah Jackson. 
the conflict in Sudan is not getting even nearly the kind of attention that the conflict in Ukraine has. The humanitarian response has not been to the same level um, as well. And nor has been the willingness of countries to receive Sudanese who, who need to, to flee. Ukraine's Navy says it successfully used a pair of sea drones to strike a Russian warship in the Black Sea. Grainy video shared on social media by Ukrainian officials appears to show one of the uncrewed vessels rapidly approaching an amphibious Russian landing ship before the feed cuts out. Ukraine says about 100 Russian sailors were aboard the warship when it was struck by high explosives and that the ship was later seen listing to one side as it was towed back to port. Russia's defense ministry claims it thwarted the overnight attack. At the United Nations, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken Thursday accused Russia of assaulting the global food system saying hunger must not be weaponized. Blinken's remarks came after Russia stepped up attacks on Ukraine's agriculture and port facilities in the Black Sea and on an inland port across the Danube River from Romania, where a Russian attack Wednesday destroyed nearly 40,000 tons of grain. What has Russia's response been to the world's distress and outrage? Bombing Ukrainian granaries, mining port entrances, threatening to attack any vessel in the Black Sea, no matter its flag, no matter its cargo. In the United Kingdom, five Greenpeace activists were arrested Thursday after climbing on the roof of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's mansion in northern England and draping his home in black fabric with the words, no new oil painted in white. The peaceful action comes in response to Sunak's approval of over 100 new licenses for oil and gas drilling in the North Sea to maximize domestic extraction of fossil fuels. This is Alex Wilson from Greenpeace speaking from Sunak's mansion's roof. We're all here because Rishi Sunak has opened the door for a new drilling frenzy in the North Sea, while large parts of our world are literally on fire. This will be a disaster for the climate. It won't lower your energy bills. It's not going to boost our energy security. The only people that are going to profit from this at all are the big oil companies. So Rishi needs to pick a side. Oil profits or our future on a habitable planet. The International Rights of Nature Tribunal has found Mexico guilty of ecocide and ethnocide over the Mexican government's construction of a massive railway project running through the rainforest of the Yucatan Peninsula. The project, known as Tren Maya, has drawn grand opposition from local indigenous Maya communities, environmentalists and archaeologists who say the railway will cause irreparable harm to biodiversity, sacred Mayan sites and communities in the region. The rail project spearheaded by the administration of President Andres Manuel Lopez over who claims it'll be benefit tourism and expand access to transportation to local communities living in remote regions of southern Mexico. In immigration news, a federal appeals court is temporarily allowing the Biden administration to continue enforcing a measure that blocks migrants from seeking asylum at the southern border without first applying for protection in a country they pass through on their journey to the United States. A Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel ruled two to one in favor of Biden's asylum ban, saying the policy should remain in place while a lawsuit brought by immigration and human rights groups is resolved in court. Last month, the measure was deemed illegal by a separate federal court in California. A warning to our audience, the next stories contain descriptions and images of police violence. In Minnesota, family members of 33-year-old Ricky Cobb II are demanding justice after his killing by a state trooper during a traffic stop in Minneapolis Monday. 
Three troopers pulled over Cobb for allegedly having his taillights off. They refused to tell him why he should exit his vehicle, which he declined to do. As they tried to force him to exit, the car takes off and one officer fires a fatal shot into the vehicle. The troopers, Ryan Londrigan, Brett Seide and Garrett Erickson, have been placed on administrative leave. Minnesota Governor Tim Walz said he assured Cobb's family a thorough investigation would be undertaken. Cobb was a father of five. In Mississippi, six white former police officers who called themselves the Goon Squad have pleaded guilty to raiding a home and torturing two black men earlier this year. The men were handcuffed, beaten and sexually abused as officers shouted racial slurs. One of the victims, Michael Corey Jenkins, was shot through the mouth with a bullet lacerating his tongue, breaking his jaw before shredding his neck. He was almost killed. Malik Shabazz, a lawyer for the two survivors, said the guilty pleas were, quote, historic for justice against rogue police torture and police brutality, and that all the defendants should expect to receive time behind bars when they're sentenced in November. Some of the guilty men could face life in prison. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, an ex-trooper was acquitted of violating the civil rights of black motorist Aaron Larry Bowman. Former trooper Jacob Brown struck Bowman at least 18 times as he was pinned to the ground and repeatedly said, I'm not resisting. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is drawing fire for his increasingly violent rhetoric on the campaign trail as he seeks the Republican Party's nomination for president. On Sunday, DeSantis told a crowd at a New Hampshire campaign event that members of Mexican drug cartels at the U.S.-Mexico border would be, quote, shot stone cold dead, unquote. The governor also said this about members of the federal bureaucracy. We're going to have all these deep state people you know, we're going to start slitting throats on day one. On Thursday, the union representing men's professional basketball players sounded the alarm over a $50,000 donation made by the Orlando Magic to a super PAC supporting DeSantis's campaign. The NBA Players Association said in a statement, the Magic's donation does not represent player support for the recipient, unquote. The Orlando Magic is owned by the DeVos family, prominent Republicans whose ranks include Betsy DeVos, who served as education secretary under Donald Trump. Texas A&M University has agreed to pay a million dollars to settle a lawsuit brought by a black journalism professor whose offer of a tenure-track position was rescinded after a conservative website highlighted her work on DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Kathleen McElroy says Texas A&M's offer of tenure was reduced to a five-year contract position amidst conservative backlash and later further reduced to a one-year appointment from which she could be terminated at any time. McElroy says throughout the process, she felt judged because of her race and gender. In January, a new Texas law is set to take effect, banning programs and training that promote diversity, equity and inclusion. Texas A&M President M. Catherine Banks resigned in the wake of the scandal, calling the negative press it generated a distraction. This comes after another Texas A&M professor, opioid expert Joy Alonzo, was temporarily suspended after a student accused her of disparaging Texas Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick during a lecture. 
and in Tennessee, two black Democratic lawmakers who were expelled by a Republican supermajority from the Tennessee State House of Representatives have won re-election. Justin Pearson of Memphis and Justin Jones of Nashville were expelled in April for leading peaceful protests against gun violence inside the Tennessee General Assembly as thousands rallied to demand gun control in the wake of the Covenant Elementary School shooting in Nashville. Both lawmakers were quickly reappointed to their former seats ahead of Thursday's special elections when they were permanently reelected. This is State Representative Justin Jones speaking after his victory. Today's election is a reminder that their attacks on democracy will not happen unchallenged. Yes. The people of District 52 have sent an overwhelming message, a mandate to my Republican colleagues that we're going to stand up and fight back. And they're going to build a multiracial, multigenerational movement to, to transform the state and move our state forward, to fight for a state where we protect kids and not guns, to fight for yes. a state where we protect each other, our humanity and our dignity. And so it's, just, it's been, we treated this election seriously because we knew that they spent so much money trying to buy this election, but they could not be people power. Yes. To see all our interviews with Justin Jones, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up in another unprecedented day in U.S. history, President Trump pleads not guilty to federal charges that he tried to overturn the 2020 election. Stay with us. Is This All There Is by Los Lobos here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump has pleaded not guilty to four felony charges over his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Trump entered the plea Thursday in the same federal district court in Washington, D.C., where more than a thousand of his supporters have faced criminal charges over the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. Prosecutors, led by special counsel Jack Smith, requested a speedy trial, while Trump's legal team asked the magistrate judge for more time to review documents and evidence in the case. It's part of Trump's legal strategy to delay the criminal cases against him until after the 2024 election, which he hopes he'll win and then could pardon himself. Trump's first pretrial hearing is set for August 28th. Trump spoke after the arraignment. When you look at what's happening, this is a persecution of a political opponent. This was never supposed to happen in America. This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. 
So if you can't beat them, you persecute them or you prosecute them. We can't let this happen in America. Going forward, the legal proceedings in this case will be presided over by U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, an Obama appointee who has issued some of the toughest sentences for the January 6 rioters, often going beyond what the prosecutors ask for. Judge Chutkin is black, as are many of those now prosecuting Trump. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, New York Attorney General Letitia James, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. They've all received racist threats. Meanwhile, the Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt, who's also black, said Tuesday the former president would not receive any special treatment if Trump's indicted in Georgia, where he's being investigated for election interference. Labatt said, quote, it doesn't matter your status. We have mugshots ready for you. A key part of the election interference charges Trump faces relate to a Civil War era rights law that protects the right of citizens to have their votes counted. For more, we go to Atlanta, where we're joined by Carol Anderson, professor at Emory University, author of many books, including One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Professor, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. First of all, why don't you just respond to the overall um, indictment and President Trump's appearance yesterday in the Washington, D.C. court pleading not guilty? The indictment was a long time coming. And it reaffirmed the, the belief in the rule of law, which it looked like for so long that he would be able to once again skate through, escape the consequences, being held accountable for his assault on American democracy. And, and so seeing him there, watching the sketches as they were coming through, listening to the, 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 journalist talking about what was happening in that courtroom, it was like, finally, finally, finally. And so talk about um, what legal analysts are now describing as a very elegant, streamlined uh, series of charges, only four. They don't, by the way, include seditious conspiracy or insurrection. Uh, talk about the significance of each one. So what what Jack Smith has laid out is the conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government, the conspiracy to to um, basically subvert a, a, a political a legal process for the United States. And the one that really attracts me is the conspiracy against rights, which is the right to vote, because underlying the big lie was the big lie of voter fraud. And that big lie of voter fraud was targeted at communities, at cities that have sizable black and minority populations. And it was trying to delegitimize the votes of those American citizens. And so this is so streamlined because there are six in that indictment, there are six unindicted co-conspirators, but they're not on the, the charge itself. It is the United States of America versus Donald J. Trump. And so that's to make sure that this thing is clean, it's smooth. There are none of these, these pieces like we have with Mar-a-Lago with multiple defendants, with classified documents. 
that this thing can go through. So the defense's claims of we, we're having a, a, a an inordinate amount of, of discovery that we have to go through of of the documents that the and the witness testimonies that the prosecutor has amassed. So much of that they already have from the January 6th uh, committee hearings. What's new, for instance, is Mike Pence, who went before the grand jury and told about his conversations with Trump. I want to talk about Georgia, where you are. You're a professor at Emory Mm. University in Atlanta. It was mentioned something like 48 times. Now, I'm talking about this federal indictment, not what's happening right now. I mean, a grand jury is meeting today uh, once again in Atlanta, and those charges might come down any time from from the uh, D.A. uh, Fannie Willis. But Georgia being mentioned 48 times in the federal indictment. And then, of course, Michigan mentioned scores of times as well. Talk Mm -hmm. about the significance of what happened in Georgia and how that relates to the federal issue. Yes. So Georgia was targeted, targeted hot, heavy and hard by the Trump regime. So you have that that infamous phone call from Trump to Brad Raffensperger, who was the secretary of state, where Trump is saying, all I need is 11,780 votes. Just find me 11,000 votes. And, and Raffensperger pushing back, saying, the data don't support that. We don't have those numbers. And, and, and Trump is just demanding that Raffensperger overturn the will of the voters here in Georgia and just conjure up some votes and plug a number in there that says that Trump won the 16 electoral college votes out of Georgia. When that didn't work, they also had the fake elector scheme where you have the, 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 the legal electors are already meeting in the state house as the law requires. Then the fake electors then sneak into the, the state house on December 14th and they're meeting there and they actually sign a document that says that they are the electors from the state of Georgia and that they then cast their 16 electoral college votes for Donald J. Trump. And then they send that document to the federal judge, to the president of the Senate and to the head of the National Archives, giving the aura that this is legitimate when it is actually illegitimate. And then you have Mark Meadows coming into Georgia at a counting center as a recount is happening over absentee ballots. I mean, hard, hot and heavy pressure on Georgia to overturn the will of the voters. And let me be really clear about the will of the voters. Ninety percent of of black voters in Georgia voted for Joseph Biden. Almost 70 percent of Hispanic voters in Georgia voted for Joseph Biden and more than 60 percent of Asian American voters in Georgia voted for Joseph Biden. So this attempt to wipe out those votes is wiping out the votes of sizable blocks of minority voters who did not vote for Donald J. Trump. I want to talk about the issue of violence, because Donald Trump's defenders are continually Mm -hmm. saying, I'm thinking of people like Kevin McCarthy, right, the House Speaker, 
uh, saying uh, he's just being accused of thought crimes, things he thought or said, and anyone can say or, or, or think things. Um, but this is the Atlantic journalist Adam Surer, who was uh, Surer, who is pointing out on social media. The indictment makes clear that Donald Trump and his accomplices plan to seize power by force and then maintain that power through mass murder of American citizens by their own military. The indictment mm -hmm. says this. Also on January 4th, when co-conspirator 2 acknowledged to the defendant's senior advisor that no court would support his proposal, the senior advisor told co-conspirator 2, you're going to cause riots in the streets. Co-conspirator 2 responded there had previously been points in the nation's history where violence was necessary to protect the republic. If you could respond to that, uh, Professor Anderson, and also the significance, of course, of Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, who you just mentioned, who might well have flipped right now and be working with um, Jack Smith. Absolutely. So you have not only um, Eastman, but you also have Jeffrey Clark of the Department of Justice being warned that this attempt to override the election, overturn the will of the voters, would lead to folks being out in the streets, would lead to, to, to riots. And the response was, well, that's what the Insurrection Act is for. So there was a willingness to use the U.S. military against American citizens who are protesting for their rights, protesting, fighting for this democracy, protesting because the will of the voters had been overturned by a, a cabal of, of co-conspirators, of co a, a cabal who were in league with Donald J. Trump. And so that willingness to use violence to, to, to overturn democracy is, it just tells you how deeply embedded this this drive was to keep him in power and the 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 disregard they had for the lives of American citizens who withstood the a pandemic, a deadly pandemic to go and vote, who understood that democracy was on the line and were willing to do what they needed to do. Um, so in terms of violence, I also have to talk about Rudy Giuliani coming down here to Georgia for three legislative hearings where he spews, he and his team spew a bevy of lies about dead people voting, but particularly about Shea Moss and, and Ruby Freeman, two black poll workers at, in Fulton County at State Farm Arena that Rudy Giuliani uh, equated, made equivalent with drug dealers push it, passing around USB Corp. USB ports as if they were heroin, as if it was heroin and cocaine. So linking election workers, black election workers with drug dealers. And then those two women receive enormous death threats, death threats that are so horrific that it causes Ruby Freeman, to, the FBI warns her that she has to leave her home for protection. That's the kind of violence that this kind of cabal was willing to generate to order to keep Donald Trump in power against the will of the voters. That's why Georgia is so prominent in this this discussion. I want to talk about um, what's just happened, the latest news with Rudy Giuliani, Professor Anderson. In recent weeks, uh, Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, um, 
said he will not contest. So he's admitting that he lied, that he will not contest that he made, quote, false statements about those two Georgia election workers in the aftermath of the 2020 election. I want to go through um, exactly what you're talking about. Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, uh, mother and daughter, are suing Giuliani for defamation for accusing them of manipulating ballots in Fulton County, Georgia, on Election Day 2020. The Georgia Elections Board found Giuliani's statements to be false and unsubstantiated, according to an investigation by the Georgia Elections Board. This is California— Congressmember Adam Schiff introducing video of Giuliani's remarks during that hearing in the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I'd like to show you some of the statements that Rudy Giuliani made in a second hearing before the Georgia state legislators. A week after that video clip from State Farm Arena was first circulated by Mr. Giuliani and President Trump, I want to advise viewers that these statements are completely false and also deeply disturbing. Tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, our sta it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. And after a week ago, and they're still walking around Georgia lying. The black former Georgia state election worker that Giuliani is referring to also testified before the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. This is Shay Moss being questioned by California Congressmember Adam Schiff. How did you first become aware that Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, was accusing you and your mother of a crime? I was at work, like always, um, and the former chief, Mr. Jones, asked me to come to his office. And um, when I went to his office, the former director, Mr. Barron, was in there, and they showed me a video on their computer. Um, it was just like a very short clip of us working at State Farm, and it had someone on the video like talking um, over the video, just saying that we were doing things that we weren't supposed to do, just lying um, throughout the video. And that's when I first found out about it. In one of the videos we just watched, Mr. Giuliani accused you and your mother of passing some sort of USB drive to each other. Uh, what was your mom actually handing you on that video? A ginger mint. So there you have Shay Moss. And the way their lives were turned upside down, Professor Anderson, I mean, men coming to their homes demanding they come out. Talk about the significance of this. And now it's shown that the tape is doctored and Giuliani is admitting that he lied. Right. And we, and this is and so this is the kind of terror that is reminiscent of what happened during Reconstruction that led to the, the, the KKK Act that um, Trump is charged with. 
because that kind of terror was the intimidation of black people who were exercising their right to vote, the intimidation of, of black people who believed that they were American citizens, the intimidation of black people who were engaged in the electoral process. This is what was happening based on a lie, where Giuliani admits that he lied. Even worse, I have to say, is that these lies about election fraud, about about massive rampant voter fraud, becomes the basis for the voter suppression laws that many states like Georgia then put in place. So you've got an incredible array of laws in place pieces of those laws dealing with absentee ballots, dealing with drop boxes, dealing with with mobile voting units, dealing with places like State Farm that Fulton County was able to use to deal with the fact that it had to close 90 polling places. Uh, And so this was a way to provide a way for people to be able to vote. So the state using Rudy Giuliani's big lie and Donald Trump's big lie to justify shutting down access to the ballot box to minority communities, because the the vast number of drop boxes that were shut down after the passage of SB 202 were in the Atlanta metropolitan area. So it went from over 100 drop boxes to fewer than 25 drop boxes. And I wanted to ask you about the people involved in these cases. Those are bringing them, judging them. The judge in the new D.C. case is black. That's mm-hmm. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, Jamaican-American. Now, mm-hmm. many of those prosecuting Trump are black. Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg, New York A.G., Letitia James, Fulton County D.A. Fannie Willis have all received racist threats. And then you have Patrick Labatt, the Fulton County Sheriff uh, saying he's going to get a mugshot if he's charged in our courts. Can you mm-hmm. talk about the significance of this and then particularly Fannie Willis and Labatt, who they are, since you're in Atlanta? So this is why you have this also this kind of massive pushback about Trump can't get a, a fair trial in, in D.C., um, he can't get a fair trial in Manhattan. He can't get a fair trial there, you know, in 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 Fulton County, because of the blackness of those spaces, and because black people and black elected officials are seen as illegitimate. Think about Trump with birtherism, with Obama. That was an attack on Obama's legitimacy, legitimacy as an American citizen, legitimacy as a, an elected political official. When blackness becomes illegitimate, so I think about Mo Brooks, the congressman out of out, out of Alabama, who said that if we only count the legal votes, then Trump would be in his second term. So those legal votes are white people's votes. The illegal votes are those from African Americans. And so therefore, folks like Fonnie Willis, folks like like Judge Chutkin, folks like Tish James, folks like Alvin Bragg, they're not legal. They're not legitimate. So they can be discounted. So when you get a, a, a charge that says, I want a change of venue to from D.C. to West Virginia, that is sending the signal about the illegitimacy of, of black people as American citizens. This, again, is what happened after the Civil War, where the Ku Klux Klan rose up and said, these aren't American citizens. The 14th Amendment does not apply to them. The 15th Amendment does not apply 
to them. We can do to them whatever we want. And that's what you're seeing replicated here in the 21st century. So now, Professor Anderson, there's a lot being made of all Trump wants to do at this point. I mean, he's made history every time here, and now the third indictment. Um, and we're expecting to see the fourth any day now with um, in Atlanta. Um, is delay these uh, trials so that if he were to become president or he had an ally who became president, he could be pardoned. But a president can only pardon on federal crimes. You've right. got Fannie Willis in Atlanta. That is not federal, that's state. So if you can talk about what we're about to see in Atlanta, the grand jury now meeting today. Yes. So one of the things that Fannie Willis has been really clear on, she's like, we're ready to go. Um, and so that means for me that an indictment is coming soon. And Fannie Willis doesn't play. She does not play. And so you can expect to see a really crisp, clean trial with lock, you know, locked in evidence. And and if he is convicted here in Georgia, if a if an indictment comes down and he is convicted, then it means that he won't be able to pardon himself. And so part of what I also want to push back on is the assumption that Trump will win the next election. He is 60, I saw a recent poll that 63% of Americans do not like Donald Trump. And what that means then is that we, we have the power as American citizens to make sure that this man who attacked American democracy, who attacked the foundations of the rule of law, does not regain power and have the ability to insert himself in a place where we have an autocracy, where where even the, 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 the memory of a democracy will be abolished. We have the power to stop this thing by registering to vote and by getting out to vote and ensuring that Donald Trump is not the next president of the United States. Carol Anderson, I want to thank you for being with us. Professor at Emory University, author of many books, including One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Coming up, we look at Niger, a week after a military coup ousted the country's president. One of the coup leaders in Niger has received U.S. military training, had met with a top U.S. officer at the U.S. drone base in Niger just last month. The U.S. trained officers involved with something like 11 coups in Africa over the last decade or so. Stay with us.
Niger musician Mdou Mokhtar. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn to Niger, a week after a military coup ousted President Mohamed Bazoum, the leader of Niger's new military junta has vowed to defy any attempts to restore the ousted president to power. ECOWAS, a block of West African countries, have threatened to take military action unless the coup is reversed by Sunday. That's August 6th. Meanwhile, the leaders of Burkina Faso, Mali and Guinea have all warned against foreign intervention in Niger. On Thursday, President Biden issued his first statement on the crisis, saying, quote, I call for President Bazoum and his family to be immediately released and for the preservation of Niger's hard-earned democracy. Bazoum is a close ally of the United States and France. The U.S. has over a 1,000 troops in Niger, where the United States also runs a major drone base. Earlier today, Niger's new leaders announced they would end military cooperation with France, which ruled Niger until 1960. On Thursday, thousands of supporters of the coup rallied to decry international sanctions being placed on Niger, which is one of the poorest nations in the world, despite being a leading exporter of uranium. People are coming. The people are coming. And we're going to demonstrate to all the ECOWAS countries and all those who are taking unpopular and inhumane measures against Niger, which is in the process of freeing itself from the yoke of colonization. We're joined now by two guests. Olienka Jala is senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Leeds Beckett University. His new piece for the conversation is headlined, What Caused the Coup in Niger? An expert outlines three driving factors. He's joining us from Glasgow, Scotland. And in New Jersey, we're joined by Nick Terse, investigative journalist, contributing writer for The Intercept, recently revealed one of the leaders of the coup in Niger, the Brigadier General Moussa Salou Barmou, was trained by the U.S. military recently met with the head of U.S. Army Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Jonathan Braga, at the U.S. drone base in Niger. African officers trained by the U.S. military have now taken part in 11 coups in West Africa since 2008. We're going to start there, Nick Terse. If you can explain um, what's taken place in the last week, and particularly the U.S. connection to the coup leaders— Yes, thanks so much for having me on, Amy. Um, you know, as, as you said, the United States has, uh, you know, trained a, a number of coup leaders in West Africa over recent years. And this is part of the U.S. security strategy. I mean, they've flooded this region, uh, the uh, West African Sahel, with a tremendous amount of security assistance, uh, really, since 9-11. They poured a, a tremendous amount of uh, security assistance dollars into the region, They've uh, built uh, a plethora of uh, small U.S. outposts. Uh, you mentioned one of them, the U.S. drone base at Agadez. Um, you know, they built up uh, militaries in the region at the expense of uh, building up civilian institutions and civil society. And this U.S. security uh, assistance, U.S. counterterrorism paradigm uh, really hasn't been successful over this time. Uh, back in 2002, 2003, uh, when security assistance to Niger uh, first began, uh, the State Department counted just uh, nine terrorist attacks in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, last year, in just uh, Niger and its neighbors, Burkina Faso and Mali alone, uh, the Pentagon counted more than 2,700. Uh, so you're talking about a something like a 30,000 percent increase. So 
Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of security assistance poured into the region, but the metrics have all gone in the wrong way. Uh, and Olayinka Jala, if you can talk about the significance of that U.S. connection. I mean, on the one hand, you have President Biden saying he wants democracy to be assured, although he didn't interestingly say Bazoom must be restored. He just said the family must be protected and democracy must be preserved. But the significance of the U.S. connection, the French connection, um, and the fact that those who are involved with the coup are couching this as an anti-colonialist move. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the U.S. and France have significant interests in the country, military and economic interests. You mentioned uh, the fact that Niger is the seventh uh, largest producer of uranium in the world, and uh, most of these uh, mineral, natural resources are mined by French companies. So they, the, the, the citizens in the country are seeing a lot of um, military installations at uh, the drone base, the Nagades, um, lots of uh, military uh, formations around the country without substantive economic um, growth. So this is one of the reasons why we've seen um, um, quite large protests in support of this. So uh, the, 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 the role of the U.S. and France uh, is one of the reasons, especially in terms of the lack of economic development, uh, but increase in the military um, development and um, association is one of the reasons why the citizens are actually revolting and supporting this coup. And can you talk about who goes out in the street and also the U.S.-Russia connection? Uh, you had some out in the streets after the coup shouting, Putin, Putin. Um, but who is going out and who is staying home? Um, well, speaking with people on ground in the J, it's almost half and half, uh, but a lot of people who are supporters and lovers of democracy are afraid to go out because of the large military presence, especially in NAMI. So what I'm hearing on ground is that um, it's almost even in terms of people who support uh, the movement also support the military junta and those who are against. Uh, but w the, most of the uh, people we've seen protesting are the ones who are in support. So that, that is quite tricky. Uh, we shouldn't be fooled by the, the videos or the protests we're saying. A, a large number of Nigerians are still uh, in support of democracy. Uh, Nick Terse, talk about the formation of ECOWAS, who they are. They are threatening to, um, I don't know if it's uh, move into Niger, they said, to restore the president. Meanwhile, the leaders of Burkina Faso, Mali and Guinea have all warned against foreign intervention in Niger to reverse the coup. Uh, over the weekend, the Burkina Faso's interim leader, Ibrahim Traoré, who took power in a coup in September, made international headlines for remarks he made in Moscow during the Russia-African summit. He criticized what he called imperialist neocolonialism. Uh, the questions my generation is asking are the following, if I can summarize. It is that we do not understand how Africa, with so much wealth on our soil, with generous nature, water, sunshine and abundance, how Africa is today the poorest continent. Africa is a hungry continent. And how come there are heads of state all over the world begging, 
These are the questions we are asking ourselves, and we have no answers so far. We have the opportunity to forge new relationships, and I hope that these relationships can be the best ones to give our people a better future. My generation also asks me to say that because of this poverty, they are forced to cross the ocean to try to reach Europe. They die in the ocean, but soon they will no longer have to cross because they will come to our palaces to seek their daily bread. As far as what concerns Burkina Faso today, for more than eight years we've been confronted with the most barbaric and the most violent form of imperialist neocolonialism. Slavery continues to impose itself on us. Our predecessors taught us one thing. A slave who cannot assume his own revolt does not deserve to be pitied. We do not feel sorry for ourselves. We do not ask anyone to feel sorry for us. The people of Burkina Faso have decided to fight, to fight against terrorism in order to relaunch their development. That's Burkina Faso's interim leader, Ibrahim Truri, who actually is wearing a hat hearkening back to previous Burkina Faso leader, Tana Sankara, who was assassinated. But Nick Terse, if you can talk about what he is saying, and the, it's also interesting that this happened at the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg that Putin addressed. Far fewer leaders from Africa came than last time. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I actually spoke with uh, a few sources of mine in Burkina Faso over the last couple of days. I've done some significant reporting there over the past years. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard from some that that speech really resonated uh, a great deal at the, uh, the anti-colonialist uh, uh, bent of it, uh, you know, made a, a big impact on people. They thought it was a really strong speech. There is a great deal of uh, uh, resistance to uh, French neocolonialism, that the French colonialists passed there. Uh, I also have heard from people um, that, uh, you know, they, they see the situation in, in Burkina as uh, as deteriorating significantly uh, in terms of both, uh, you know, the terrorist violence, uh, uptick in, in kidnappings, and also in, uh, in, in crackdowns of freedom of expression, uh, freedom of the press, so you have both these things going on there. Uh, you know, there, there are some that, that really support the government uh, and, and believe there's more behind this this type of uh, rhetoric. And then others who say that this is uh, a smokescreen and uh, it's just entrenching the power of uh, a military junta that really isn't uh, so interested in, uh, you know, fighting against uh, colonialism, neocolonialism. Uh, but more interested in entrenching its its own power and, uh, and and using that rhetoric for its own benefit. So if you can talk more about um, the U.S. training that goes on of African leaders, um, talk more about um, uh, Secretary of State Blinken just having visited Niger and the significance of this drone base, where it's used, the one in Niger, how the U.S. uses it as a launching pad in the world. Yes, uh, Air Base 201, it's, it's uh, located in Agadez, which is uh, in the, the central north of the country. And this is really uh, the linchpin of uh, U.S. military outposts, uh, which have proliferated over the last several years uh, in West Africa. Uh, this is a, a, a surveillance hub. It's used for anti-terrorist activities. Uh, as you said, drones are launched from here, uh, including armed drones, uh, MQ-9 Reapers, uh, so uh, this is an exceptionally important base. It was built at a price tag of uh, 
over $110 million and maintained each year uh, at a price tag of about 20 to $30 million. So it's a significant uh, uh, facility. The U.S. Africa Command, uh, the umbrella military organization uh, for U.S. military activity on the continent, they often uh, claim that these aren't U.S. bases, that, uh, that the U.S. doesn't have bases in Africa outside of uh, Camp Lemonnier in Djibouti. Uh, I've been to uh, Air Base 201. They wouldn't let me on board it, uh, on board the base. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I traveled to its gates and I, I observed it, uh, you know, uh, from from the ground and from the air. Uh, this is a, a substantial uh, military base. There's no other uh, word for it. And I think the, the United States is is now doing everything it can to make sure that it can continue operations there. Uh, you know, it's uh, you mentioned Secretary Blinken. He. Uh, And the State Department as a whole tried to stay away, I think, from calling this a coup when it's quite obviously one. But uh, I think they want to keep their options open. Uh, You know, once once a coup is declared, uh, the U.S. is supposed to stop most of its security assistance. Uh, There are ways around that. There are loopholes. Uh, I've reported recently that in in neighboring Mali, where you have a a U.S. led uh, junta there. Uh, there is still some trickle of security aid flowing. Uh, the United States finds a way when it when it needs to, but uh, but Niger is so central to, uh, to the counterterrorism paradigm and uh, and security interests in the region. I think um, they'll they'll do everything they can to keep uh, Air Base Two Hundred One uh, in action and as much uh, U.S. military presence there as possible. And Olayinka Ajala, um, it's interesting that it's Guinea, Burkina Faso and Mali that are warning against military intervention by ECOWAS. ECOWAS did not speak out on, in all of these, the cases of their coups. Do you think that um, has emboldened the junta in Niger to take over? And what would an ECOWAS intervention look like? And if you can talk about how ECOWAS has seen uh, the African military alliance in Africa. Absolutely. That was what I mentioned in the piece, which I wrote um, uh, earlier in the week, where I stated that one of the reasons for uh, this coup was because ECOWAS did not really do anything significant to deter other countries from uh, the militaries from other countries from taking power. So when the coups in Burkina Faso, Guinea, and Mali happened, there were a couple of sanctions issued against the military regime, uh, but nothing further was done. But we need to put this uh, in context. One reason why Niger is quite different, in addition to uh, the 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 country being allied to the U.S., the France, is also the fact that Niger has land border with seven different African countries. So whatever happens in, in Niger impacts significantly on many countries in the Sahel and in West Africa. So this is why it is more of interest than the other three countries. I think in terms of what ECOWAS is trying to do, the a delegation led by the former military president of Nigeria, Abdul Salami Abubakar, um, returned to ECOWAS headquarters this morning in Abuja without any significant uh, progress. They didn't even see um, General Tiani throughout the visit. Uh, uh, so this tells us that um, not a lot has been made in terms of progress or in persuading the, the junta to step down. 
Uh, there is a deadline of Sunday uh, for them to hand over back power to Basum uh, or, or else they face military intervention or uh, the use of force against them. Uh, we don't know how this is going to play out, but it is going to be very bloody. The spokesman for ECOWAS yesterday said this would be the very last option, but any military attack would be would uh, be, be very significant because uh, we've had yesterday the, the leaders of the Juntas in the other three countries have threatened to support Niger, and they stated that any attack on Niger will be an attack on them all. So ECOWAS, had to, they have to uh, tread very carefully because it's a very tricky situation for everyone. And the role of your country, Nigeria, uh, Africa's most populous country, oil-rich nation, what it is threatening right now? Well, it, uh, it's really interesting because Niger is a very important ally to Nigeria, uh, especially in the fight against um, Boko Haram and uh, Islamic State West African province around the Lake Chad. So is an ally in Nigeria is very keen um, not to lose, especially in this fight, because the uh, substantive gain have been made in the fight in the last uh, couple of years, and they won't want these uh, to be reversed. Uh, also, in terms of um, the president of Nigeria, Bola Ahmed Sinobu, being the, uh, the head of ECOWAS, he just assumed um, this post in the last few weeks, and he's keen to put a mark because he's, he's issued very strong statements against coup, not only in Niger, but across the region. Interestingly, in his acceptance speech as the, um, the chairman of ECOWAS, he kept mentioning coup. Uh, even before this happened. So this is in relation to what has happened in the other three countries, which I feel Nigeria felt um, the, the, it was a lost opportunity because if more pressure had been put on either of these countries or all of these other three countries, perhaps this wouldn't have happened in, in Nigeria. And finally, Nick Terse, what do you think, um, as an American uh, reporter uh, on Africa, what is the American press and overall the press missing when it comes to understanding what's happening here and what can happen? Well, I, I think uh, a lot of times we're missing uh, deep context on this. Uh, you know, one thing that really stood out to me, the Washington Post yesterday published uh, an op-ed by the uh, deposed uh, head of state in, in Niger, uh, President Bazoum. And, you know, he talks about it being the last bastion of democracy in the Sahel. Uh, when I was there earlier this year, uh, I, I did not find it uh, the most democratic uh, state. Uh, if you read State Department reports, you'll see that uh, there are tremendous amounts of, uh, of uh, abuses of uh, the citizenry there. The, the military that we've been backing for, for years has uh, conducted a, a tremendous amount of atrocities. And this has built uh, a great deal of, of ill will uh, within the military itself and within the civilian population. And I think uh, what's missing is, is that type of context, the understanding of what uh, pumping all of this money into the security apparatus uh, in the Sahel has meant for the people there. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I thank you both so much for being with us, and we'll continue to follow things closely there in Niger. Nick Terse, investigative journalist, contributing writer for The Intercept. We will link to your recent pieces. Niger coup leader joins long line of U.S.-trained mutineers, as well as soldiers mutiny in U.S.-allied Niger. And Oleinka Ajala, we thank you so much for being with us from Glasgow, senior lecturer in politics and international relations from Leeds Beckett University. 
University. And we will link to your piece, What Caused the Coup in Niger, in Expert Outlines 3, Driving Factors. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.